welcome to this episode of the Arcananth Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Rivera. This is a podcast for sharing information about anthropology, the study of people, and archaeology, the study of human lives in the past. I'm so excited to speak with today's guest, archaeologist and anthropologist, Dr. Katie Tucker. Katie, are you there? Hi, yeah, I am. Hi, where are you calling in from today, Katie? I'm actually sat in my apartment in Berlin. Um, very nice and sunny here today, but unfortunately I'm surrounded by building sites, so I've had to shut all my windows. <laughs> and, like, and you may hear um, hammering going on from next door as well. I've got ah, some okay. new, new neighbours who've just decided they're going to hammer this morning, so uh, apologies if you can hear that. <laughs> <laughs> we always have a rule in our house when I'm recording that all the windows will be shut because we have a lot of seagulls. Uh, the Hague, Netherlands is by the sea, and so... You don't want to hear that squawking, especially in the summer. <laughs> yeah, we've just we've just got like uh, asphalt uh, pounding machines and hammering <laughs> and all sorts of things going on at the moment. So, um, how are you doing this week? Yeah, not too bad. Um, still kind of getting used to the strange situation that we're all currently living in, mm-hmm. um, but trying to work away on the the few projects that are still kind of able to to go on at the moment. Yeah. Uh, we should have been in Ethiopia working in the highlands um, from the beginning of May, but unfortunately, of course, that had to be postponed. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm working on the bits that I can do from home right. for that project at the moment and finishing off a few little other bits and bits and pieces for reports and Mm -hmm. publications and various other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last week, I recorded an episode with Sofia Carrera, who is a primatologist who works in the Ethiopian highlands as well. And she studies like, um, you know, mother mother health, uh, mother monkey health, like in the geladas that live in the highlands. Okay, yeah, interesting. So it's really interesting. And um, are you anywhere near those uh, gelada populations? I've seen a couple um, as we've been working in the distance. Um, <laughs> but no, I've never come up close to any. <laughs> okay, I think they're in a, in a reserve or like in a park. So um, yeah, I'm sure you'd be able to visit uh, once the situation gets safer. Uh, it, it sounded really fascinating just to know that there's a, apparently they just hang out in herds so they look like buffalo or cows almost like just to the to the horizon yeah brown little furry bodies yeah i've seen we've been been working away and then suddenly there you'll see something out the corner of your eye over the other side of the valley and you're like what is that <laughs> not, uh, <laughs> and then yeah stealing we, things from the site are they no luckily we haven't had any come to the site so um <laughs> no we've been saved that yeah how long have you been working in ethiopia i've been working there since 2013 uh the project's been going for many years before i became involved mm-hmm. um Unfortunately, we've kind of been a bit stuck for funding a lot of the time. So we've been able to go for short seasons here and there, but we've mm-hmm. never been able to kind of definitely say, right, we're going to spend a month, like yeah. twice a year. So it's been slowly kind of um, happening, the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were just kind of ready to start getting everything going again properly going back for the first time in since 2017 um we were able luckily to spend a short amount of time there in january kind of preparing for the next seasons of field work yeah and then of course uh the current situation happened and we had to postpone so we were rather frustrated about the fact that we were just getting ready to go back and start doing field work mm-hmm. um and unfortunately we couldn't 
Yeah. What was the uh, original inspiration or auspice of the of the project itself? Like how many uh, people were involved then and what were the main motivations to go there in the first place? Okay, well, the, the project, and this was long before I was involved, the project really started um, to investigate the interactions between two medieval dynasties in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. So you have a... Um, a Zagwe dynasty who were um, in these particular areas in Ethiopia first and they built a lot of churches. Um, And then you have an incoming Solomonic dynasty who came in and started to kind of take over these churches and paint their own wall paintings and things within churches, build a lot of new churches. Um, And so the project was really started to investigate the interaction between those two dynasties in the medieval period. So it started off really by looking at the uh, wall paintings in the churches and then it's involved a lot more specialists in um, ceramics and uh, lithics and architecture and archaeology and also bioarchaeology, mm-hmm. which is what I do as part of the project. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you find the experience of uh, working with such a, you know, sort of diverse range of specialists? Like, are there, can you give an instance of like maybe some insights that they were able to uh, find and then that sort of helps to inform you on how you interpret the bioarchaeology in Ethiopia? Well, it's just, um, it's interesting because it's, it's not somewhere that I'd ever really thought about working before. Um, and I think it's a really good project because I've been in projects before where you kind of, you end up in some way you've never really worked before. It's a completely kind of normally British team. So you're all kind of outsiders coming into an area working um, and you're almost in a kind of little bubble, completely separate from what's going on everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And then you do your work and then you're in a bubble, you all stay in the same place and then you come home again. Whereas in Ethiopia, they've got very, very strict regulations in terms of how you're able to do archaeological work. So you have to uh, collaborate very, very closely with the um, ARCCH, they're called, which is the Authority for the Research and Conservation of Cultural Heritage. Um, So they're like the government body in Ethiopia that deals with with heritage. Mm -hmm. And you have to have members of the ARCCH kind of watching over you at all times in terms of the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have um, members of our team who work for the uh, ARCCH and they work in our team as specialists. Mm-hmm. So we have a lithic specialist currently um, and a social anthropologist mm-hmm. as part of our team who are... Um, who are members of the, uh, who work for the ARCCH as well. So I think it's been, it's been really interesting working with this project because the only way really to get the most out of it is to work very closely with the local communities as well, Mm -hmm. because without their cooperation, we, we can't do the work. They are perfectly able and within their rights, quite rightly, to say if they don't like what we're doing, that they can stop us from working there. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So the fact that we've got these very, very close links mean that we're able to communicate much better with the local community and involve the local community in what we've been doing as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's a much better way of of working than just kind of going in as a British or European bubble and doing your work and coming away again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Helicopter research, I think is what they call it. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There really is no excuse now for these kind of helicopter projects, as you put it, um, mm -hmm. that we do need to be much more inclusive in the work that we are doing. And if we, we need to involve local archaeologists in the projects that we do, and that needs to be much more than just kind of lip service to local communities and local archaeologists, that if we're writing papers... Um, local researchers need to be included in those papers. They need to have co-authorships in those papers and their contributions need to be fully acknowledged in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is very important also, as a white European researcher working in what is, unfortunately still a very white-dominated discipline, um, I think I just have to acknowledge that there's a lot more that I need to learn about how to make my work more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, the, that's one of the fantastic things about your podcast is that you have such a diversity of voices. I try. Yeah, I mean, it's, fun, it's amazing the, the diversity that you have. But I think I need to acknowledge that I need to listen more to that diversity and um, try and understand how I can make my work more inclusive and just kind of how I can make my work better mm-hmm. um, in that regard. Well, in all regards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that is something that like a lot of uh, researchers are contending with today. And I, I think that is a really great thing, actually, that people are wanting to, you know, decolonize the discipline and to bring more people into the fold and actually have them have the platform, um, you know, have people from certain groups that have never had a similar platform. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, we're that's so important. Yeah, we're trying to do it in a small way um, with our project in Ethiopia, obviously. But in future seasons, um, we are well. We've been asked by uh, some universities in Ethiopia to provide training to their students in, particularly in things like bioarchaeology, for which there isn't really any provision within Ethiopia. Um, So, I mean, we're trying in a small way to do what we can, but obviously Mm -hmm. we need to always think that we could be doing more and how can we do more? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I would love to see, and um, I'm not talking about any other institution except for the one that I went to, just to be clear. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I I would love if, you know, one day we were able to see that the professor of you know, geoarchaeology or the, you know, lecturer in African archaeology, I would love it to be, you know, a, a Nigerian or a Kenyan or, you know, a Namibian or Ethiopian researcher in those posts uh, in the UK one day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that has to be, that has to be the aim. We can't, we can't continue with this very kind of white centered colonial view of the way that we do archaeology it's just not it's not acceptable but we have mm-hmm. to you have to recognize that we are not doing all we can now and how can we do better yeah as soon as possible 
Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Is there um, uh, and so when when uh, you're looking at, at these specific, uh, are there specific sites? Like how many sites are there? How many? How how large is the scope of this project? Okay, yeah. Um, we've been doing most of our work at a site called uh, Ganetta Mariam, which is, um, people won't have heard of Ganetta Mariam. They may have heard of uh, Lalibela, though, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very famous site with all the rock cut churches. Ooh. You know, the very famous cross shaped rock cut church, for example, and a lot of other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and around Lalibela, there are a number of other sites that also have very similar rock cut churches. And we work at this particular one called Skeneta Mariam, which is of interest because it has paintings within the church mm-hmm. depicting uh, the, uh, this Solomonic ruler. Hmm. Uh, so it's interesting that it seems to be that the Solomonic dynasty have come in and kind of um, staked their claim on this church by by putting these wall paintings in the church. Right. So we're working there. Um, a lot of the work that we've been doing there has almost kind of been in a way rescue archaeology mm-hmm. um, because the the community, uh, the church is kind of up on a bit of a hill and it was quite difficult to get to. Mm-hmm. So the community cut a new path up to the church um, and we were able then to see, this was before I was involved, but there were human bones kind of poking out of the section Hmm. where they'd dug this new path. Um, And you could also see burials eroding out of the surface of the the compound Mm -hmm. um, for the church. So we started to try and do a bit of rescue archaeology and excavate some of these burials. Uh, Unfortunately, only a small number so far. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we've also... Um, been working on understanding, or we're hoping to do more work, (laughs) to understand how these churches were built. So they have these platforms outside them, which are artificially constructed. Mm -hmm. uh, And it seems to be that all the material, when they were digging out the rock-cut church, then possibly formed these artificial platforms. Right. So in excavating the burials, we're hoping to also kind of as part of that to understand the stratigraphy so how layers have been um laid down to form this artificial platform mm-hmm. how, how far back does this site date to like is there a, a large time range well the church seems to have been built in the 12th century mm. um we believe but We've had a few radiocarbon dates on the burials that we so far excavated. Mm. And um, unfortunately, well, I say unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is what it is. The radiocarbon dates have been late. So we're talking 17th century onwards mm-hmm. um, for the radiocarbon dates at the moment. But of course, we've only really been able to excavate kind of the latest layer of burials. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping with future work, um, and we're also going to be working within the church compound where the priests um, who are associated with the church and the monks have told us that's where the earliest burials are. 
please mm-hmm. come and excavate these burials. Right. Um, so we're hoping that we're going to get burials and other archaeological evidence that's contemporary with the earliest phases of the church. That's mm-hmm. the aim. Yeah. What is the, the, the landscape around it? Can you describe a little bit about like, um, you know, uh, how long is the journey just to get to the church and uh, what is the setting like there uh, surrounding the church? Okay, yeah, it takes us about an hour to get from Lalibela. Mm-hmm. I think it's only about 20 kilometers away or something, I believe. Okay. But the roads are very, very windy, mm-hmm. um, very, very bad surface. Uh, they are improving a lot of the roads now, but um, not all of them yeah. are so good. I do remember in the past uh, traveling there by uh, like minibus and actually getting stuck hmm. uh, when we were trying to <laughs> trying to drive down these little kind of mountainside roads, and we mm-hmm. all had to get out because yeah. we were weighing the bus down too much, um, and then they could get it moving again. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You're really traveling through very mountainous landscape, uh, very winding roads. It takes a very long time. You have to drive very, very slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the church itself is located um, on the side of a mountain, and it's very, very mountainous terrain and very kind of rocky, um, small bushes and trees, but really kind of. I don't want to say moon-like because that's wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you are the uh, you know one of the bioarchaeologists that's on the team. Is the are there many human skeletons that we find at uh, Gennetimerium? There are a lot that we can see still sticking out of the section for the path. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we haven't yet been able to excavate those. We've only so far excavated nine individuals. Okay. Um, but even from nine, we're getting quite an interesting insight into the the population that's buried there. We've mm-hmm. got individuals from all ages and both sexes, um, and we're already able to see interesting things about burial practice mm-hmm. uh, within the the population. Yeah, because uh, children are buried on a north south orientation. And um, adults, including older adolescents, are buried on a west-east orientation. Hmm. So that's very interesting in terms of what it might tell us about individuals' kind of personal status within the community. Like, why are they buried at different orientations? Mm -hmm. What does that mean for people in the community? And is there a certain age at which you change from being buried uh, north south to being buried east west. Yeah, are they buried uh, like uh, outside, like in a cemetery, or like inside the church itself? We have burials uh, outside the church uh, on the platform um, that's been created outside the church. We also have burials that we haven't so far excavated within the compound. So not within the church itself, but within the rock cut compound of the church. Mm. Uh, we have some burials that are cut into the um, the rock floor surrounding mm-hmm. the church and also some that are into the walls in niches right. uh, that have um, incised decoration above the niches. Mm-hmm. We've also been told by the monks and the priests that there were burials within the church 
Um, but whether they are still there, um, it's very, it's possible that the graves have been emptied. This is something that happens in a lot of churches in Ethiopia, that any graves within the church itself, the bones have been removed and reburied elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, for, for, um, various reasons, ethical reasons, particularly, we won't be excavating any burials within the church itself, even if yeah. they are still there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that you said that there, they haven't been able to um, excavate uh, some of the skeletons that are there right now, but uh, do you have any um, hypotheses or what were you planning to do if you were able to go to Ethiopia this year? The plan was to excavate a lot more of the burials um, from within the, the compound of the church itself. Um, we had started to excavate in 2017, um, but for various reasons, we had to stop before we were able to fully excavate any of the burials there. Mm-hmm. And we're hoping that those will be the earlier burials um, so, so medieval burials associated with the church. That's what we're hoping. Mm-hmm. Um, we were also hoping to do some more work in the, um, the outer cemetery on the platform um, and try and excavate more of the burials that are now starting to erode out of the section edge because um, mm-hmm. you can access them. It's quite covered in... Um, cacti and various things but you you can access the burials there and we were hoping to excavate some more of those and investigate more about the uh how the platform may have been constructed Mm, okay Um, we were also hoping to start working um at another site um which is called washer mikhail which is another um rock cut church Mm-hmm. This one is cut out of a big kind of rock monolith. Yeah. Uh, and it is surrounded by burial caves. And there, a number of these burial caves have got a lot of um, disarticulated skeletal remains in them. So skeletal remains that are no longer um, articulated as skeletons so they're not mm-hmm. uh, it's mixed bones of lots of different individuals and some of the burial caves have partially or almost completely mummified naturally mummified remains in them mm. okay. so we were we were also hoping in the um the season that we should have just had to start working with some of those burial caves to properly record them to try and do photogrammetry of them produce mm-hmm. plans and start to excavate some of the human remains from some of those caves as well. Fascinating. Yeah. Do you, uh, so has there been any um, interesting findings uh, just in terms of like osteology or paleopathology so far? Because I feel, I feel like uh, there's so little known about, um, you know, certain bioarchaeological uh, contexts and that would be certainly one of them that I know very little about. Yeah. I mean, there has been very little work done really in Ethiopia generally in terms of kind of historical bioarchaeology. Mm-hmm. Obviously, paleoanthropology is in Ethiopia is very well established. Um, yeah. Lucy and all, all the other mm-hmm. um, paleoanthropological finds uh, from Ethiopia, but the historical period in terms of bioarchaeology anyway, there was a lot of work done 
particularly by French archaeologists in the 1960s. And they did excavate a number of cemeteries, but the, um, the papers that they published on the material really does, does not talk about the human remains at all. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no data on the human remains. Yeah. And currently we don't even know if those uh, remains were excavated or not. Right. Um, so there's all these papers talking about graves and grave objects and the position of the body, but absolutely nothing on the human remains. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some work is starting to be done now um, on human remains from various sites. But again, it's, it's very, very little. Um, so, I mean, what we're doing, hopefully we'll add to the data. I mean, we're already starting to find information. We've got evidence for osteoarthritis among some of the individuals and uh, anti-mortem fractures and things like um, dental disease, which Mm. may help us to try and put together a picture about diet. Though obviously we're still talking, we've got a very, very tiny sample at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but also uh, one individual that we've got who may have been using their teeth as tools mm-hmm. as well. So maybe working sinew or thread or something in their teeth. Interesting, yeah. So we're getting little snapshots at the moment about um, uh, osteoarchaeological information about the individuals, but obviously we're still working with a tiny sample, which mm-hmm. we're hoping obviously to improve yeah. vastly. <laughs> I know that you have, um, you know, delivered a lot of uh, demonstrations and lectures and workshops, specifically teaching, you know, interested students or interested publics about the about the work that osteoarchaeologists do. Are you able to like weave in some of these these experiences that you've had in Ethiopia, uh, working in different sites to uh, into your teaching as well? Yeah, I mean, I try uh, whenever I do more general um, talks to try and weave in bits from all sorts of different projects that I've been working on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been difficult so far with Ethiopia because we have got a kind of limited data yeah. uh, in terms of the human remains. But I certainly try with other projects that I've been doing to add little bits in. Um, <laughs> if I've got an, uh, an interesting grave that I've excavated or um, uh, an individual that's got something unusual about them, I'll always try and kind of bring them in as as kind of case studies into what I'm talking about. Yeah, definitely try and mm. do that. Do you have uh, one example of uh, you know another another site that you've worked on, another project that you have been excited about? Oh yeah, I mean I've done quite <laughs> quite a lot of projects over the years. Yeah, probably one of my favourites, and I'm still really desperately hoping that we get to do more work on it in the future mm-hmm. is the work that I did when I was still working for the University of Winchester, who mm-hmm. I worked for for a number of years in various capacities up until quite recently. Um, and we were working on a medieval uh, leprosy hospital uh, just outside Winchester. And um, we had a vast amount of um, evidence for the buildings and the layout of the hospital. Uh, But we also had uh, about 120 skeletons that we excavated Mm -hmm. from the hospital. Individuals of all ages. But the amazing thing really is 
we had almost, I think it's about 85% of the individuals had skeletal evidence for leprosy. Wow. Uh, what, what does that look like? And yeah, how would it have uh, affected people when they were living with leprosy at the time? Well, uh, leprosy is its a chronic disease and it's caused by um, a mycobacterium, mycobacterium lepra. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a recently identified additional mycobacterium called lepromatosis, uh, which may also have been responsible for skeletal lesions in individuals in the medieval period, but hasn't yet been identified from the ancient DNA uh, in the medieval period. Mm-hmm. But we now, we now know it exists and it's something we um, people have started looking for. And... Leprosy it really affects your peripheral nerves, uh, so it leads to loss of sensation in the extremities, so in your hands and your feet. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the skeletal lesions that you see in people with, with leprosy are related to this loss of sensation and the fact that if you cannot feel your hands or your feet, you're much more likely to injure them and sustain quite serious injuries to them without realizing what you've done. So, for example, there are stories of people leaving their foot in a fire and because they can't feel it, they don't remove their foot. Um, and so they then get very severe burns and infections, mm-hmm. um, and then that leads to severe lesions, Uh, skeletal lesions associated with that Mm -hmm. it also has some weird effect on the bones that is not quite properly understood Mm. where it leads to resorption of bone Um, so bone starts to disappear in the particularly in the fingers and toes Mm -hmm. but also around the mouth and nose as well so you get loss of bone in these areas right so you get um individuals who can lose a lot of the bone in their hands and hands and feet because of this kind of strange effect that the leprosy bacterium seems to have on the bone Mm -hmm. Uh, and you'll also get people who lose a lot of their teeth because the bone that holds in their teeth um is lost so the teeth then fall out and in very severe cases you can get loss of kind of the entirety of the front of the face wow mm-hmm. um and the hard palate and and other things will also disappear mm-hmm. so you can get these very very severe lesions associated with leprosy yeah and it sounds really it just sounds really um distinctive like there's no mistaking it once you see it right if yeah i mean if you know what you're looking for (laughs) um if you're trained (laughs) if you're trained yeah Mm -hmm. i mean some of the of the lesions can look like other things sometimes Mm -hmm. so how does a paleopathologist um you know uh deal with that when, when they're drawing up their report i think you just have to be really careful in your differential diagnosis as well because Mm -hmm. I think there's a tendency sometimes to read a single sentence about what skeletal lesions will look like and then think oh okay that's what I have right Uh, but I think it's always very very important you have to be really um you have to go really deep into exactly what the skeletal lesions look like Mm -hmm. 
because for example with leprosy um people it's quite tempting to say uh oh this individual has um so-called periosteal lesions so this new bone formation on their lower legs Mm -hmm. um you often get that in leprosy therefore this individual must have leprosy um but there are from just kind of from experience and from reading a lot of um, literature mm-hmm. on what leprosy actually looks like, the, the lesions that you will get in leprosy are quite specific. And in the position of the bones, it's quite specific and the mm-hmm. appearance is quite specific. So you have to really be careful that you are going quite deep into yeah. the descriptions and don't just kind of superficially think, oh yeah, well, you get these periosteal lesions and therefore this must be leprosy. Yeah. Uh, when I've seen, uh, you know, really responsible, uh, responsibly written reports and uh, journal articles, usually there is that def- differential diagnosis and you go through them. And even though, even though it might be, you know, maybe obvious to you what it, it is clearly not, you want to go through that, the different possibilities and then try and like, you know, knock them, knock them out one by one. And then hopefully you'll by the end have only, you know, two or three um, remaining explanations for what you're seeing, uh, so that you've you've gone through that scientific process of at least uh, seeing whether, yeah, basically testing your hypotheses. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's sometimes it is quite long and involved mm-hmm. and requires a lot of reading of often clinical literature as well, because sometimes you'll be looking at a skeletal individual and they've got something very strange going on that you've never seen before Mm -hmm. um i'm actually working um with a couple of people at the moment about uh, on an individual from the leprosy hospital Mm. who has very unusual looking lesions um we already know from the ancient dna evidence that they do have leprosy but these skeletal lesions don't look like leprosy and they don't really look like anything else I've ever seen or can find <laughs> wow. in the paleopathological literature either. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where these differential diagnoses are really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and also trying to link it with the clinical literature. Yeah. Of course, the problem with that, when you're talking about archaeological skeletons, is... With a lot of the modern clinical literature, you're obviously looking at um, individuals where they've, they've had access to modern treatment. Mm-hmm. So the skeletal lesions you may be seeing are possibly not going to be as severe as, they would, as you would be seeing in archaeological individuals where they haven't had access to modern treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've often found in the past, if you can get access to older medical textbooks, 19th century texts or early 20th century texts, they'll often be closer in appearance to what you might see in your archaeological skeleton. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's good to look at both modern clinical literature and also older uh, literature. Um, But uh, yeah, with this particular skeleton that we're trying to look at at the moment, we still really 
have no idea. We've, <laughs> we've got a few things that we're looking at that it might be, but currently haven't been able to come up with with anything that we think it definitely is. Yeah. Um, I, I, uh, just from like looking stuff up online and, and just knowing you as well, I feel like, uh, you know, the work that you do is uh, just really fascinating because of how varied it is. And it isn't that you've only worked at this leprosy hospital in Winchester or in, in Ethiopia as well, but you've worked in so many different contexts. I was wondering, like, what what does that give you in terms of like understanding or strengths in terms of just being able to study skeletons in so many different contexts? Do you kind of, you know, borrow insights from each of the things that you studied, and then they kind of help you in, have a really holistic view when you are then encountering a new skeleton? Yeah, I mean, I've, I think I've been very lucky and been able to work on lots of different projects. In a way, sometimes I think it's a bit frustrating mm-hmm. because there are certain projects that I, that I wish I could work on more right. um, or certain topics that I wish I could work on more. Um, for example, my PhD was uh, looking at the evidence, skeletal evidence for decapitation, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in Roman period skeletons. And that still really fascinates me. And there are so many more questions I would like to look at (laughs) for that project. But unfortunately, I haven't really had an opportunity to go back to the subject since I finished my PhD, just because I've had to then move on to other things. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, in terms of the, the positives, I think the fact that I have been able to work on lots of different um, sites, uh, lots of different periods. I think it gives me just the access to slightly uh, larger sets of data Mm -hmm. in terms of looking at the paleopathology, for example, um, the fact that I've been able to look at thousands and thousands of skeletons from different sites. Mm -hmm. You get to to see a, a, a larger variety of skeletal lesions, and then you're able to think, "Oh, actually, I think I saw a skeleton mm-hmm. with these type of lesions in this one site that I did five years ago." And mm-hmm. is this the same thing? So that's definitely a benefit. But yeah, as I said before, in terms of not being able to go back to subjects that I'm really interested in, sometimes that's a little <laughs> bit annoying. <laughs> Um, and I know that you um, self-define as like a freelancer. And uh, I was wondering, like, what, do, what makes a freelance archaeologist or osteologist? How would you define that? Well, I would say uh, um, I define myself as a freelancer because I work for lots of different projects at the same time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the current situation has meant that <laughs> I don't have that much work at the moment. And I'm hoping that will change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm currently working on the, our project in Ethiopia. I work for Transylvania Bioarchaeology, who, uh, and we run field schools mm-hmm. uh, in bioarchaeology uh, in Romania every summer. Um, and we should have been going at the end of June, but unfortunately, again, that's something else that's fallen victim to the, to the pandemic. So we're not able to go (laughs) this summer. And yeah, I also, I've been working on various, um, skeletal projects in, um, Berlin where I'm based Mm. and around Germany. And I work for, um, and Dante archaeological travels and tours and I um, 
do study days there where I teach interested members of the public how to be an osteologist for a day. Um, so yeah, as a freelancer, I just kind of work all over the place and with loads of different projects and, um, I'm always looking for new projects as well. So, so if anyone's yeah. got any projects that they need an osteologist for or, or who would like to collaborate or anything, I'm always interested to hear. Yeah. How did you uh, find learning about, you know, the fascinating world of osteoarchaeology in the early stages of like your education? Like what drew you to working in this discipline in the beginning? Well, I mean, I've always been interested in archaeology. I think even as a very small child, I was always kind of looking down mm -hmm. at the ground to see <laughs> what I could see, like poking out of the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember my grandfather hiding coins in his garden and I would go and hunt for the coins. Ah. Um, as a small child. Really like special coins or like when you dug them up, oh, minted. In. <laughs> <laughs> they were like old pennies and oh, okay. old sixpences and stuff that they mm -hmm. obviously had hanging around. Uh, my grandparents were hoarders, so I mean they had all sorts of stuff, <laughs> right. which is very good because we've now got a very good family archive um, that they left us. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so I would go hunting around in their garden for coins. Mm -hmm. So I think it was always kind of inevitable that I was going to do archaeology at, at university. And I almost actually decided, well, really, as a, as a child, I wanted to be an Egyptologist. That was the, the thing for me. Many people do that, you know? Yeah, I think it's one of those things. Dinosaurs and Egypt, it's like the two, <laughs> the two things. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and it's, I don't know why, really, in a way that I have ended up in human remains, because one of my earliest memories really, and when I was still determined I was going to be an Egyptologist as a child, uh, was my local museum, which was the Newark Museum in Leicester, which is uh, one of the oldest museums in the country. Mm -hmm. And when I used to go there in the 80s and early 90s, they had um, this dark corner of the museum where they had a reconstruction of Egyptian tomb. Mm. And you'd go in, it would be very, very dark. Um, and kind of creepy and they had a case with a mummy uh, in it in this dark corner mm -hmm. and I remember its toes were poking out of the bandages and it always used to terrify me as a, as a child right. um, but maybe in a way that's kind of that terror then turned into fascination um, with human remains because I could kind of I had that connection with this mummy that was sat in this in this case in the creepy darkness in this museum right um so yeah so then after um thinking i wanted to be an egyptologist i looked into um egyptology degree courses mm -hmm. decided there was too much literature and language in them which i wasn't interested in yeah so then briefly flirted with the idea of doing medieval history um, but decided again that wasn't for me, so decided to do archaeology. So I went to Bristol and did a BA archaeology degree. Mm -hmm. Then I worked in, I got a job in uh, commercial archaeology in the UK, so working as a, um, a site assistant. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a while, and one of the sites I worked on, I found a skeleton. 
Wow. Um, and it wasn't in a grave. It was in a ditch on an Iron Age site, mm-hmm. uh, so a pre-Roman site. So it wasn't expected to be there. And I kind of, to my eternal shame, I managed to mattock through the legs of it because I didn't realize <laughs> that right. it was a skeleton. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... And then we had some very bad weather and the whole site got flooded, uh, including the, the ditch that this skeleton was in. Um, and then I got moved off to a different site. And so I never actually finished excavating the skeleton. Yeah. Somehow, I don't know. This is weird because this, you would have thought this would be the thing that I would rem- remember. <laughs> Why yeah. did I decide that I wanted to do bioarchaeology? Mm-hmm. And to be honest, now I can't remember what I wanted to do <laughs> bioarchaeology, yeah. but I'd been working in commercial archaeology for about a year. Mm-hmm. And then I decided I wanted to do a master's course. And um, I, for some reason, I decided I wanted to do human That's osteology. Okay you know, I yeah, think that I mean, we, we put a lot of pressure weird, on yeah. our students to like <laughs> know what they want to do and like do all these things, do a hundred things just to, to do that one thing. And I think that's way too much pressure. So it's actually refreshing to hear that sometimes it's okay. Like maybe yeah. you don't need to, you, you don't need that. <laughs> yeah, it happens. Sometimes. It happens um, sometimes. Yeah. And I was very fortunate to actually get a natural environment research council studentship for the master's course at Bradford University. Mm-hmm in human osteology and paleopathology. So I went and did that for a year, full time. And then I uh, managed to get a job working for the York Archaeological Trust as an archaeologist, site assistant. But when I was on my first site, there were Bronze Age burials on this site. Mm -hmm. And so it became known that I had my master's (laughs) in human osteology. Mm So um, I was excavating burials on this site, and then I kind of fell into doing their osteological work um, at the Trust. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a few years. Uh, Then unfortunately, the work ran out, so I was made redundant. So then with my ex-partner, we moved to Cyprus for for a period of time. Um, Unfortunately, not working in archaeology. We couldn't get jobs in archaeology. So then after a while, I was kind of got fed up that I wasn't really doing anything related to archaeology anymore. So I decided I wanted to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. And actually, it kind of it, my PhD links back to the work I was doing for the Archaeological Trust in York. Yeah. Because one of the sites that I worked on um, was uh, a Roman period site with a, uh, a cemetery site with um, a lot of burials who'd been decapitated. Mm-hmm. So I did the osteology of that site. So I, I'd always been interested then in... Um, the phenomenon of decapitation and like why were individuals decapitated? Mm-hmm. Um, because it was always assumed then that, um, oh, it was a post-mortem burial ritual, that they were decapitated after death and then put in the grave. And I was like, why? Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> why would they do that? If that's true, why would they do that? Mm-hmm. And the osteological evidence that I was getting from the from the individuals suggested that 
they look like executions to me. The type of trauma that you were getting on the skeletons mm-hmm. looked like executions. Mm-hmm. But then had to stop because um, I had to earn money. There was no funding. So unfortunately, I had to drop the PhD. But yeah. that was also on decapitation. So then I was still really interested in that topic and really wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. So then I applied to Winchester University to start the PhD again. Um, and again, I was very fortunate and I got a, um, a doctoral studentship mm-hmm. from the university to do my PhD there. Uh, so I was able to move back to the UK, to Winchester, mm-hmm. and then did a full-time PhD. Yeah. Again, it's kind of all these kind of strange coincidences that just like kind mm-hmm. of lead lead to lead you to where you end up. Yeah. Uh, what 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 do you think are some of the biggest challenges that archaeology faces right now, uh, just outside the pandemic? Uh, just to to speak about it more generally, do you think that there's anything that has changed uh, since you began? working in archaeology in particular, uh, you know, how do you see yourself fitting into the work, you know, going forward in the field? I think the biggest struggle, and I mean, I think it's, it hasn't necessarily really changed, particularly as a freelancer and particularly with um, a number of the projects I've been involved with, the struggle is always funding. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've been part of projects that haven't necessarily been associated with the universities or the institutions that seem to get the majority of the funding. Right. Um, you always look at who has been funded in these various funding rounds. And I think there always seems to be a disproportionate amount of funding goes to a very small number of institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very difficult to get money for projects so for our ethiopia project for example we've got small amounts of money from places um but we really need a big grant to be able to do the work that um properly that we need to do because so far i mean i've been working on the project since 2013 and we've only been able to do short seasons here and there because it's been largely self-funded by the project director. So I think, yeah, the biggest challenge as far as I see it is, mm. is the funding to be able to do the work that you need to do if you're not attached mm-hmm. to one of these very select number of institutions that seem to be very, very good at getting right. funding. And so uh, where, where do you see yourself you know, uh, going forward? Like what, what, what kind of work would you hope to do and... Yeah, maybe maybe try and help this situation if if it's if that's possible at all. Well, I mean, I'm I'm hoping to still continue um, with the freelance work. I do like the variety um, of work that I do. Uh, I think it enables me to stop becoming very kind of myopic about a particular topic because mm-hmm. I have all these different interests, and um, I would like to still continue working in all these different places um but i think at the what i'm hoping for is to be able to work more for our project in ethiopia um we're gonna be Mm -hmm. writing grant applications 
uh, soon. Yeah. <laughs> with the aim that that would include a um, position for me within the project mm. on a full time basis. Right. Um, because I think. Well, with with the pandemic, but also kind of just generally anyway, as being a freelancer is quite precarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pandemic has really kind of shown quite how precarious it can be. Yeah. So um, I think I've got to the point now where it would be quite nice <laughs> to have some um, guaranteed yeah. income mm-hmm. um, and guaranteed work on a project that I really enjoy doing and mm-hmm. really want to do more more work for yeah if anybody um, um, does want to uh follow the this work that you're doing um is there any is there somewhere that people can find you online uh yeah um i can be contacted on uh twitter mm-hmm. um it's it's probably quite a bad twitter handle but i came up with it years ago and <laughs> it's never changed it since um it's at now dr k okay so n-o-w-d-r-k okay um, surprisingly enough, I got that just after I'd, um, got my, yeah. <laughs> my PhD mm-hmm. and I know I've never changed it. Yeah. Um, we've also, uh, for our project in Ethiopia, we've, uh, just finished recording a, a video presentation, which is going to be part of, um, a conference, uh, an online conference that's being organized by Dig Ventures. Cool. Um, so we've just finished recording our contributions. Dig Ventures are editing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if people search for Dig Ventures, I think it's called Dig Nation, mm-hmm. the online conference, and register, they'll be able to watch um, our uh, video cool. <laughs> presentation on the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also will have a website um, for our project there as well. It's still being put together. Um, Mm -hmm. but if people search, we're hoping to get it out there by the middle of the month, middle of June. Right. Um, but if people search for the soul zag project, S O L Z A G, Mm -hmm. um, we will eventually, hopefully (laughs) sooner rather than later have a website up. Um, so yeah, those are the best ways really of, of contacting me or, um, looking into the the work that we're doing in Ethiopia. Interesting. Cool. Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, And do you have a hashtag for this episode? Oh, yeah. I've been thinking about this. (laughs) As I've been walking around the the house and on my uh, permitted daily exercise, I've been thinking about a hashtag. Um, How about uh, hashtag freelance bones? Freelance Bones. Yeah, I like that one. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Freelance Bones. Uh, Well, uh, cool. Uh, Listeners, if you want to let us know on social media that you have heard this interview all the way through, then you can do so by using the hashtag Freelance Bones. Uh, We are on Facebook, Reddit, Instagram, and Twitter at ArkanathPod. I want to say a very big thank you to the patrons of this show who keep this podcast afloat. Um, Yeah, I, I... I think that it's, you know, really, really meaningful to me to have patrons supporting the project, especially um, in these difficult times. Uh, I really, really appreciate the support. So if you listening right now are not yet a patron and you want to start supporting the show, then go to patreon.com slash and anything you can do 
to help out on Patreon would be much appreciated. I'm going to include uh, some links and more information about Katie's work, uh, all of our previous guests as well. Uh, you can find all of those details on arcanth.com and you can find new episodes of the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Uh, Katie, was there anything that you feel uh, we didn't cover already? Do you have any, th- any closing messages? Um... No, I don't think so. Just I wish everyone well in this current strange situation and I hope that mm-hmm. everyone is able to get back out into the field and um, able to do their projects again soon. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I echo those sentiments. I uh, uh, hope everyone is doing okay at home and um, yeah, thank you so much for listening to this. I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.